of the universe. Perhaps the story of Jesus that is recorded is that of a different kind of king. King Jesus is not born in some far-off castle or with great fanfare. Instead, he was born into the muck and mire of the world he came to serve. It is unlikely, but this is how we encounter our king and discover his kingdom. Who is on the throne of your heart? Again, I'm so glad you're here today. It is good to be together. It is good to see you. College students, it's nice to have you back. Thanks for being here. For many of you, school starts tomorrow, right? And you've had all these weeks to pre-read, to look over those syllabi, to prepare, right? You're ready to go? Eh, plenty of time. We are glad to have you back. Just the energy, your presence here, your involvement in this church family, it means so much to us. So thanks for being here. Our prayers are with you this semester. Have a great semester. We want to be your church home away from home, or for some of you, your church home, because this is your home. We're glad that you're here. It's always good to see our youth. I'm just glad that we can be together this morning. This morning, I want to help you cast your eyes above and beyond where you are. We're probably all at different places. We have different things going on, different circumstances. For some of us, things are going well. The start of the new year, new opportunities, new excitement. For others, this is a time when life is difficult. Maybe loss, maybe challenges, maybe relational things, maybe physical things. There are challenges. And just for a moment, for the, for the next few moments this morning, I want you to try to look above and beyond all of those circumstances, good, bad, or indifferent, and look to a day. A future day, the day, the day of the Lord, as it's called in Scripture, the day when we will rise up and we will lay our crowns at the feet of the King of Kings. I want you to see what that day might be like. The joy, the praise, the no tears, the no pain, the no suffering, the no sin, the no death. I want you to grasp a vision of that day. And let that vision inform how you live on this day. If you have a Bible, open it up to Revelation chapter 4. We're going to spend some time in the last book of the Bible this morning. We're going to look at a couple of different passages in Revelation. We're going to start in chapter 4. If you'd like to have the scriptures in front of you, open up your device or your Bible to Revelation chapter 4. Several years ago, I was driving down the road and I saw a sign that said, The end is near. The sign didn't exactly look like this, but you get the idea. The end is near, and I thought, someone knows something that I don't know. Is this true? Is the end really near? And if you know anything about predictions of the end of time, the end of the world as we know it, you know that there are countless predictions. And there are some that are quite notable. Anybody remember back in 2012 when everyone looked at the Mayan calendar? And they said, based on a full cycle of the Mayan calendar, we can predict the end of the world. It's going to happen on December 21st, 2012. So don't worry about Christmas shopping that year. It won't matter. Well, you know what happened. Life went on as normal. Some people believe that so much that one guy actually built an ark to survive the end of the world. But the ironic thing is, 
in this speculation, it was kind of assumed or at least speculated that the earth would collide with some unnamed planet and that would be the end of the world. So I'm not really sure what an ark would do, but E for effort for the guy. A guy named Harold Camping is, is well known for publicly making at least 12 predictions about the end of the world. And my question is, how many predictions does it take before people stop listening to you, right? He makes all these predictions, and he is uh, he's one who studies numerology in the Bible. And he looks at all the numbers, and he said, okay, here's when it's going to happen. May 21st, 2011. And he, as he calculated all of these numbers, said that is exactly 7,000 years after the biblical flood. So it's going to happen then. Call the guy who built the ark. Maybe that's the time to get him. And so he said, May 21st, 2011, and of course, it didn't happen. And when it didn't happen, he looked back at his calculations and he said, my math must have been wrong. Huh, you think? He didn't carry his one or something. I don't know. He messed up the math. And so he said, well, it's going to be a few months later. And of course, that didn't happen as well. There was a Taiwanese religious leader who predicted that God would appear, get this, that God would appear on U.S. television, specifically on Channel 18, I don't know why, Channel 18, and that he would, I think this was a day in March of 1988, a specific day, March 25th, 1988, God would appear on U.S. television, Channel 18, and he would announce to the world that he was sending Jesus to come back the following week. Obviously, it did not happen. And maybe my favorite story, in the early 1800s, 1806, a farmer in England had a chicken, a chicken that laid eggs, and on these eggs was written the message, Christ is coming. That's pretty remarkable. People from all over the place went to this guy's farm to see this chicken and to see these eggs that had this message, Christ is coming. They were nervous. They were afraid. What's gonna, what does this mean? Is this a message from God? Come to find out, the guy, the farmer, was taking the eggs, and he was writing on them with non-corrosive non ink, and then putting the eggs back where they came from so the chicken could then lay the eggs with the prophetic messages on them. Yeah, everybody's thinking, poor chicken, right? Exactly. All of these predictions have one thing in common. They are untrue. They are false. They are phony. They did not happen. In Mark chapter 13, verse 32, we have these words. Jesus says, referring to the day or the hour of his return, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, not even the Son himself, only the Father knows the day of his return. And so maybe as we think about the end, maybe as we think about Jesus' return, maybe the question isn't when, maybe the question is what? What is it going to be like? What is the purpose for his return? What is he going to do? What does he expect from us? What does it mean not only for us at that point in time, but what does it mean for us right now in light of him coming back? Whenever that might be, the question is what? And in the book of Revelation, we begin to see a picture form, a picture of the what. Through a series of vivid scenes and symbolic images, we have this picture 
this panoramic view of God's plan for humankind, of what's going to happen on the day of the Lord as history culminates in this glorious day. John shares a vision, a vision he receives, these pictures, these scenes, these images, these symbols. He shares that with us, and in this image, in this vision, we are taken into the throne room of God. We were there before God. We see God sitting on the throne, and we see his divine plan culminating in the day, the day of the Lord. And it's important that we see this picture because it informs how we live now. When we cast our eyes on that day, it gives us perspective for this day. No matter what's going on in our lives, good, bad, indifferent, challenges, victories, opportunities, blessings, whatever is happening, we see that day. And that day informs this day. And so we step into the throne room of God with reverence with awe, with a sense of worship, just as we have done collectively this morning. Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. John says, After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice that I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven, with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. And so through this vision that John receives from the Lord, a heavenly door opens up, and we are ushered into the throne room. The word throne is used some 38 times in Revelation, the word crown is used like 11 times. If we're going to talk about King Jesus, we've got to deal with what's happening in Revelation. Because in Revelation, we see Jesus under, under the direction and the authority of his heavenly Father bring his kingdom into full fruition. When Jesus came to earth, when the word became flesh, he said the kingdom is near, the kingdom is upon us, the kingdom is coming. And it was through his life and through his teachings and even through his death, he revealed the true nature, the heart of God's kingdom that is not of this world. We've talked about that in the past, in this series. And so Jesus said, the kingdom is coming. The kingdom is at hand. It is near. It's the already, but not yet. Because one day, that day, the day of the Lord, the kingdom will come. It will be fully established. And so we're ushered into the throne room. And we see the king sitting on the throne. And we see this glorious image. We notice that there is something else going on. There are 24 other thrones around the throne. On these thrones are the 24 elders. You think, well, is that a, is that a who's who of famous elders from churches in the past? Is that the Mount Rushmore of the best elders that ever served the church? No, of course, ours would be there if it was, right? We can all amen, yes. Now, this is likely symbolic of God's collective people, his leaders throughout both covenants, the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles, God's leaders of his covenants. And they're sitting on these thrones, and what do they look like? What are they wearing? They have on white garments, and they are wearing crowns of gold. 
And as the four living creatures, representing everything that has been given life by God, break out into praise and worship, declaring, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. I want you to notice the posture that these 24 elders take. Back in the text, verse 9. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down. They fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and they say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by, you, and by your will they were created and have their being. You're going to notice as we look at several scenes in Revelation that there is a theme, a constant theme, and that is a theme of worship and praise. You are worthy. Praise be to your name. If you don't like to worship, I'm not sure you're going to like heaven that much. And I don't mean worship in the sense of, oh, it's almost 1040, we got to go to worship. I mean coming into the presence of God. And in the presence of God, responding to who he is and who you are in light of who he is. Because the only response is to fall down on your face and to acknowledge that he is the Lord of lords and to praise his name and to worship him because he is mighty and merciful. He is powerful. He is pure and holy. It's a constant theme throughout Revelation. It should be a constant theme in our lives even now. But I want you to notice again, what do the elders do? Well, first of all, their posture is they fall down before the one who sits on the throne. They didn't stumble. They didn't trip. They threw themselves down in an act of submission. And what is the action that they take as they fall down? They lay their crowns at his feet. And what is their message? You. You, Lord, you alone are worthy. We aren't worthy. Yeah, we have thrones. Yeah, we're wearing crowns, but we pale in comparison to you. You are the one who is worthy. I want you to lock this image into your mind. We're going to continue to add some brushstrokes to it, some, some more scenes in this panoramic view. The very next chapter, John sees something. And when John in Revelation says, I saw or I see this, it's the writer's way of saying, here's another part of the vision. There's a scroll in the throne room. And this scroll is sealed with seven seals. Seven, as you probably know, is the complete number. It's a biblical number. The more seals on a scroll, the more important the message on the scroll this one has, has seven seals, and we need it to be open. We need this scroll to be open. We need these seals to be broken because we need to know what is on the scroll, the message. It is the what. Not the when, it is the what. It is what God has planned for humankind, what he's going to do with his creation. The opening of the scroll will set in motion the events that will ultimately lead, ultimately lead to Jesus' return to that day where he will establish his kingdom, his everlasting kingdom. But there's a problem. No one can open the scroll. 
No one is worthy, the text says, to open the scroll. You know what that feeling is like. Most of us have a phone, and on that phone, to open it up, you have to do what? You have to put in the little passcode. You ever tried to open someone else's phone, a friend or your spouse? You need to look up something or see something, and you're like, I can't get in here. I don't know the passcode. And now our phones have this technology where they can recognize your face. That's just amazing to me. You just got to show your face, and it gives you access to your phone. That's amazing technology. Well, the scroll can't be opened by anyone. No one has the passcode, if you will. It doesn't recognize anyone's face. No one can gain access to what is written inside. No one is worthy. But then we find out there is someone. There is someone worthy to open the scroll. There is a face that is recognized, someone who has the code, someone who is worthy. John sees a lion of all things, the symbol of power and strength. But that image, that scene, that picture is quickly replaced with a counter image, that of a lamb, meek and lowly. And not just a lamb, but a lamb that was slain, a lamb that was killed. And of course, we know this was our Savior. This is Jesus. He is the only one worthy to open the scroll. And when Jesus takes the scroll, the four living things and the 24 elders surrounding the throne burst out in this extemporaneous song. It's almost like they wrote it on the spot. And what do they sing? You are worthy to open the scroll because you were slain, because your blood purchased freedom from sin for every tribe, every language, every people, every nation. Look at chapter 5, verse 11. Then I looked. And I heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000, meaning endless numbers. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice, they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said amen, and the elders fell down and worshiped. Everything that has breath declares that the Lamb, Jesus, is worthy to receive what? To receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise to receive all the things that he deserved when he came the first time, but he did not receive from humankind. You look at that list and you think, wealth? That's weird. What use does Jesus have with money? It's interesting, that Greek word, plutos, can also mean value. That makes sense. Value. One day Jesus will be valued. He will be treasured rather than be devalued and despised. As he was when he was here the first time, and as he is so often in our world today. What do the elders surrounding the throne do? Again, they fall down and they worship the Lamb. All right, one more scene to add to this picture. The throne room of God, Revelation chapter 19, amid 
worship and praise, John sees another scene unfold. It's a symbol-filled description of what is going to happen when Jesus returns. Chapter 19, verse 11. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We need to keep in mind the context of this writing. As I said earlier, Christians in the first century are under the oppressive hand of the Roman Empire. You see, Christians, like everyone else in this world, were expected to look at Caesar as king. Not just as king, but Caesar was the ruler above all rulers. They referred to him as Lord. He was the Lord of all lords. He was the king of all kings. And you were expected to acknowledge that fact. And if you didn't, it meant you were going to be persecuted. You were going to get in trouble. Things were not going to be good for you. And so this is the ethos. This is the the lay of the land for Christians in the first century, at the end of the first century, under the Roman Empire. And it's almost like Revelation is is a code language for these people to give them hope, to call out the Roman Empire and say, yes, your circumstances are difficult right now. Yes, it seems like Rome has all power, that the emperor is the true ruler of all rulers. But one day, things will change. Bring your eyes up from your circumstances, up from your context, and look to that day, look to the future, look heavenward, because one day things are going to be different. And the power that you think this kingdom on earth has, it's going to pale in comparison. It's going to go away. The influence that this ruler has, it means nothing. It means nothing. In this looming reality, the Roman military, the Roman government, the Roman economy are all going to fall. And many of these symbols throughout Revelation, scholars think, relate directly to those entities. The Roman economy, the Roman government, the Roman military. Some of the beasts we read about in Revelation. It is likely that is what is being referred to. Again, giving these first century Christians hope that the beast does not win. And so what does this revelation show us in chapter 19? That Jesus is coming, riding on the white horse, and there is going to be a day of reckoning. You see, ultimately, all kings and kingdoms will be subject to the true king of kings and his kingdom. No matter how powerful they seem on earth, they will fall. And they will fall before the true king of kings. There will be a day of justice and judgment. There will be a day of mercy for those who are in Christ. A day that Jesus returns to claim his own. 
and cast away those who oppose him. He will establish his kingdom fully, and he will receive the honor and the glory and the value that he so deserves. So what do we do with all of this? What does it mean for us? We know some of the what. So how does it make life different? I think the message is pretty clear. I think the message is that we follow the lead of these elders. What do these elders do? They humble themselves before the Lord. Specifically, they fall down and they lay their crowns at the feet of Jesus. And that's what the text says they did. And I think that's what we should do. You see, this is not just what's going to happen on one day in the future, but this is what needs to happen right now. Maybe this scene in the throne room of heaven isn't just a descriptive picture of what will happen one day, but maybe it is a prescriptive directive for what needs to happen right now. Remember back in chapter 4, those 24 elders were wearing crowns. Does that seem odd? Why were they wearing crowns? What did these crowns represent? And that's been a question that people have wrestled with for a long time, and scholars have looked at it, and they said, well, you know, God says we're going to get a crown. Scripture talks specifically about the crown, the rewards that those who are in Christ will receive one day. Paul writes about it, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8. He says, there is in store for me a crown of righteousness, and it is for all of those who long for his appearing, this crown of righteousness. James reminds us that there is a crown of life that goes to those who persevere. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4, that the chief shepherd will come, and when he comes, he will give us the crown of glory. And so these elders wearing these crowns, is this what they're wearing? Are they wearing the crown of glory, the crown of righteousness, the crown of life? And as they lay them before the feet of Jesus, they're saying, Jesus, these things come from you. We acknowledge that you give us life. You make us righteous. You glorify us as you are glorified. It very well may be. But I want you to think about a different perspective, a different way of looking at it. Are these literal crowns? Are these, I mean, the text says they're crowns of gold. Maybe they are symbols like so much else in Revelation. And maybe they're not necessarily symbols of the crown of glory, the crown of righteousness. Maybe they are the crowns that we like to wear. You know those crowns. Those things that we wear proudly to designate what crowns designate, status, power, identity. You see, these crowns that we wear, they often come in one of two forms. Either they relate to affluence or they relate to influence. Affluence meaning the things that we have, our riches, our treasures, our success, our possessions. We are proud of those things. We take comfort in those things. We, in fact, form our identity based on those things, don't we? They become crowns that we wear. But also there are crowns of influence, the power that we possess, that others have given us, that we have fought for, that we defend mightily. The status, the influence, the social standing, the privilege, all of those things that we don't want to lose. 
We wear those proudly. And when we wear them, we feel important. We feel like kings and queens. Maybe it's time to lay them down. Not just one day when we're in the throne room, but maybe this day. To lay those things at the feet of Jesus as an act of submission, acknowledging that those things mean nothing. In relation to who he is and what he has done, those things pale in comparison. And we submit all of those things to him for his honor, for his glory. You see, on that final day, there will only be one wearing a crown. And it won't be you, and it won't be me. No matter how much power or influence you have in this life, no matter how much money you have, no, how much status or social standing or power or privilege, no matter how big the retirement fund, no matter how great the name that you've made for yourself, all of it means nothing. Every crown you have or think you have will be placed at his feet. So why wait? Don't wait. Do it now. Lay your crowns at the feet of Jesus. Submit to him. Acknowledge who he is. Submit every part of your life to his lordship. Any influence you have, submit it to his lordship. Any affluence you have, honor him with it. Advance his kingdom with it. Give him the honor and the value he deserves. Don't simply embrace Jesus as a teacher, as a friend, or even just as a savior. Fall down before him as king of your life and live under his reign and his rule. So is the end near? I don't know. I'm sure we'll have more predictions. I'm sure people will come up with theories. I'm sure people will have lots of guesses. And wrapped in all of those guesses and all of those predictions is a big question mark. They will all have one thing in common. They won't be right. As Christians, as those who are clothed in Christ, those who live under the reign and the rule, those who live as citizens of heaven, even here on earth, maybe it's not the end. Maybe the beginning is near. The real beginning of life as it was intended to be lived. The life that God created you to live. It's not about the end because the end says, I'm going to lose all the things that are important to me. But if my perspective is, maybe the beginning is near. It means I'm going to gain everything. Do you know how Revelation ends? All of these symbols, all of these pictures, all of these images. Do you know how it ends? At the very end, Roman, uh, Revelation 22, verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Can you honestly pray that prayer? Can you say, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The only way you can say that is if you are confident in his return. Not confident in your own ability. Well, I'm going to show him how good I am and it's going to be good. He's going to say, 
Come on, you've done such a good job. You're with me. No, you're confident in who he is. And if you're with him, he is with you. He is for you. It's not the end. It's only the beginning. And so the only question remains is, are you prepared? Are you ready? Are you ready for him to come back? It will be a day of reckoning, a day of justice and judgment, a day of mercy extended to those who claim Jesus as Lord of their lives, as King of kings. If you haven't done that, it is time. Give Jesus your life. Today would be a great day to do that. Confess, which means just say in front of others that you believe Jesus is the Son of God. Be baptized. And as you reenact the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus, God raises you up and gives you a new name and a new purpose. You are a new creation. You live as a citizen of heaven, of God's kingdom. You live under the lordship, under the reign and the rule of Jesus. Do that today. Make that choice. If we can encourage you, let us do that. A couple of our shepherds and their wives will be in the parlor right off this hallway behind me. You can exit out any of these doors and make your way there. They would love to encourage you and pray for you, lift you up. If you have a special concern, they would love to visit with you. Or we'll do that as a church family if you want to come down to the front. There's something we can do. We invite you to come as we stand and sing. Let's stand.